Welcome to exclusive coverage of the Miami Book Fair International. For more information, log on to MiamiBookFair.com. We're talking today with another um, politically active um, individual. His name is Daniel Newman, and he has an innovative new book called Unrig, How to Fix Our Broken Democracy. And um, Daniel is a national expert on government accountability and money and politics. And he is president and co-founder of MapLight, a nonpartisan nonprofit that promotes transparency and political reform. Um, he has appeared in hundreds of media outlets, including CNN, CBS, MSNBC, Fox Business News, and NPR, and lives in the Bay Area. Welcome, welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you, Bennett. It's a pleasure. And um, what was the genesis of Unrig? For the last 15 years, I've been working to expose money's corrupting influence in our democracy. And as you said, I started an organization, MapLight, that does those exposés and helps reform our political system. And as I've done this, I found that it was really hard to uh, for people to have an entry point for what are the problems of our democracy and how to fix them. There are some terrific books out there that go into great detail about the problems with our democracy, but uh, they leave solutions sometimes for a few mentions in the last chapter. They don't really tell how to bring about those solutions. Yet I saw people around the country that are making positive changes happen. I wrote this book as a graphic novel. It's a 250-page nonfiction comic book to bring optimism and positivity so you can understand what's wrong with our country first, but also see the solutions that are tested and working in in place and the people that are bringing them about. When you say optimism and positivity, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that over the weekend, um, we had a, uh, a drive-in um, festival that included Moonstruck. And so I'm, I'm hearing Shira say, snap out of it. <laughs> but you know, optimism and positivity is everything we do need at this time um, in, in these crazy, um, this crazy era. But um, we've had, actually, you're not our first graphic novelist um, we have on our show. And, and from the Miami Book Fair, um, a couple of years ago, we had um, Robert Sikorsky, who had did a, an amazing um, graphic novel called Terms and Conditions, and basically he used liter literally terms and conditions, I think it was from Apple, um, to make a graphic novel. Uh, and so I thought it was quite innovative, and we see the value of the graphic novel, and here the, you know, the graphic um, presentation. And I, I heard one of your presentations and someone said, you know, why did you do it that way? And I get it. Um, and anyone in, you know, kind of our age, you know, we grew up with, um, you know, Schoolhouse Rock. And, you know, so some of, some of these concepts were talked, taught to us initially. And of course, not that we didn't have a school on top of that, but they were taught to us in cartoon format. Yeah, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill, right? Exactly. From, from Schoolhouse I, Rock, yeah. yeah so, I mean, um, I, good. 
I, I mean, I grew up reading the the local paper in Trenton, New Jersey, and it was always the funny pages that was the first uh, that I was interested in. So it's it's a medium, yeah. All of us has grown up with, and uh, if you, it's it's visually uh, it's visually appealing to to everyone. I, I think if you are stuck on an airplane in an emergency, they don't have a long list of dense type telling you how to get off. They have a comic book on the safety car telling you how to get off because it's university accessible. And, and so when you first started thinking, I want to write something on this, when did you, was it graphic um, illustration from get-go of the idea or you're like, how can I communicate this? Did you actually start writing it first as a, just a straight, you know, um, nonfiction book? I wrote it uh, as as a unique piece for a graphic novel specifically. I've been interested in writing a book for years about the problems with our country and how to fix them. Mm -hmm. But there's the the audience for uh, nonfiction books. I mean, reaches a certain segment of society. But I it wanted is. something that could could reach much more broadly. And I I was uh, was fortunate enough to be in touch with. Um, First Second, which is a publishing division of Macmillan that has published Unrig. And they hooked me up with this amazing artist named George O'Connor, who's written other best-selling graphic books. And so it was a collaboration with me writing, instead of writing uh, a draft text, it was really a draft script. And it's what do the characters say? And I'm then end up being the narrator in the book, uh, put in the stories of uh, people like the badass grandmas of North Dakota that ended secret money in North Dakota and so many other stories. And then George, the artist, would bring these to life in amazing ways. Now you cover a number of areas that I think need to have light shed on them, um, from the role of the Koch brothers to uh, voter suppression. And um, actually, this show. Uh, at one point was on iHeartRadio and I had a show where I referred to the Koch brothers as pond scum and I noticed shortly thereafter we were no longer on um, iHeartRadio. I don't know if there was any coincidence but hey. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about the Koch brothers since in terms of money and politics they, they seem to be the, the Darth Vader in, this, in the system. So as I was writing this book, I was thinking about what makes a better democracy. Is it better democracy meaning government actually work for most of the people? And that means more people voting. It means less money in politics. So people are influenced more by the people than by big companies and billionaires. And I thought, well, who's the opposite of this? Who is it out there pushing for more voter suppression? Who is pushing for more gerrymandering? And who is pushing for unlimited secret money in politics? And then there's an answer to that question. So it's the, the Koch brothers is the shorthand, but it's really a network of about 700 billionaires and millionaires. Uh, so it's a really tiny group of the, the U.S. population that is really pushing this agenda, this anti-democracy agenda. Now, in the book, I call these people the wealth hoarders. Sometimes you refer, you hear them referred to as the radical right, but I don't really think that is an accurate description because there's lots of right-wing conservatives that are they're quite different from what this this group is. This group is extreme libertarian. So these wealth hoarders, want, they realize that in a modern inclusive democracy, if it's working well and responsive to the people, then there are going to be things like public schools. There's going to be things like healthcare. There's going to be things like social security. And some of this, the money for this comes from taxes on very wealthy people. 
And these people have an extreme view that uh, they just, they don't want to be taxed. They don't want to help other people. They think everyone thinks out for themselves. They've already got theirs and they just, right. they just don't want to help. And so, so they've been, they've been pushing uh, an anti-democracy agenda because having things be anti-democracy is the only way that they think they can win. And um, you, you go into you know, the background. They started off as a, a libertarian, a libertarian candidate. Uh, one of them in 1980 was the vice president, presidential candidate. I'm thinking Ronald Reagan, <laughs> yeah, the who many can see the apex of the conservative movement was was um, too liberal for them. That's right. And David Koch ran as the VP uh, candidate for Libertarian Party, partly so they could avoid campaign finance limits and spend as much as they want. In fact, the, the Kochs provided 60% of the money for that Libertarian campaign. But then they got crushed in the 1980 election. They got only 1% of the vote. And they thought, well, running Libertarian candidates is not really going to get them where they, they wanted to go. And so they they started this, this multifaceted plan to shift all of government and society to the right with hundreds of, of think tanks, of educating judges, of changing rules. They, um, the, the story is really well told in this book called Democracy and Change by Nancy McLean, a historian at Duke University who unearthed the, the documents that, that describe all this, as well as Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. And so uh, you can, on my, the book's website, unrigbook.com, you can actually read the Wealth Order chapter for free and, and get this whole quite sweeping 50-year story of how uh, the, the efforts to dismantle democracy that is still going on today. And so you talk about the, the secret money in North Carolina. Give us more background on that. So in in North Carolina, so the question is, what would the what would the 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 country be like if the the wealth hoarders win or successful? Sure. They, they are, and and so in North Carolina, there's there's a good example of that because, uh, backed by unlimited secret money, they had take over state government uh, several years ago, and so they started uh, slashing uh, teacher salaries, laying off teacher assistants, cutting school supplies, ending environmental regulations, ending a clean money election program so judges could be elected without uh, big money. So now like the, they were able to elect their own judges, uh, turn down health care for poor people, even though the federal government was paying for it. So it's this whole list of, uh, so we know pretty precisely like what they would like to do with the country because this is what they've done to North Carolina. And the, the one of the things that uh, I think has gone is not done enough recognition is that the how the wealth hoarders have have taken over the Republican Party thanks to unlimited political spending. So since the Citizens United awful Supreme Court decision in 2010, that's allowed the wealth hoarders to spend uh, money on federal races for Congress and even on state and local races. And so many people have remarked that the Republican Party over the last 10 years or so has gotten less willing to compromise, uh, less science-based, more anti-climate. And you have this phenomenon that people who were previously considered moderate Republicans, there doesn't seem to play, be a place in the, the national political party for them. Like this is driven by this um, this funding of, uh, of these, this small group of billionaires that has a really extreme agenda and says to Republicans, like, 
will you either back this agenda or we're going to back a primary challenger. And that's happened again and again. And so that's why you see like national Republicans and many state Republicans towing this line that seems like much more extreme than it was 15, 20 years ago. Unrig has the potential to be this generation's most influential book on American democracy. It is a must read. So good luck on your book tour and good luck on the virtual Miami book fair. Um, <laughs> you won't get the benefit of the weather, but yeah, you're in Berkeley. So life is good there anyway. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Bennett. It's a pleasure. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.